Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 43, The Anglo-Dutch Wars, Part 1, The Mercantile Menace. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, then the best way of doing that is by signing up for membership. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. For only $4.99 per month, you get access to our exclusive premium feed. That is a whole two extra episodes each month. At the moment, we're nearing the end of the Aztecs, as the Spanish are about to arrive. So it's definitely worth checking out that, if you like this style, and if you want to know more about the colonisation of the Americas, south of where we are right now. Special thanks to our newest pioneer, listener Robert. Thank you. I couldn't do this show without you. Where we're at right now is New Netherland. In our last episode, we properly brought Peter Stavacent into the narrative and looked at a number of the challenges he was facing during his early years in charge of the colony, such as the colonists moving towards demands for a more representative system than the one currently in existence. We also saw the withdrawal of the Dutch West India Company from colonial life as it struggled to afford to upkeep its monopoly. It was indeed a struggling colony. In its desperation to attract migrants, it could only really get hold of the worst elements of the European population, and maintenance of public order was very problematic for authorities. In these years, the early 1650s, the major element of foreign policy for New Netherland was something we've already covered, the growing tension with New Sweden. This led Stavacent to launch an invasion to eliminate the competition. I'm not going to repeat this, but I instead want to expand slightly upon the story. I mentioned when we were covering the endgame of New Sweden that Stavacent was forced into accepting peace terms which were favourable to New Sweden because of an Indian war in Manhattan. This deserves a bit more of an explanation. I've mentioned before how relations had been tense between the Indians and the Dutch, and once they realised that the governor was out of the province, they decided to take advantage of the situation. In mid-September 1655, a group of tribes comprising the Esipus, Hackensacks, Mohicans and Pacamis launched a raid to devastate the Dutch settlement. I will be highly surprised if I've got all those names pronounced correctly. Speaking of which, we actually have a pronunciation correction from last week. Listener Christopher was the first on the scene to tell me that I got the name of the Dutch-controlled island north of Venezuela wrong, and it's actually Curaçao, not, as I said, Curacao. Thanks for keeping me honest. Anyway, these various Indian tribes, which I have probably pronounced wrong, invaded the Dutch settlement. Sixty Indians died compared to only fifty of the Dutch, but they were more interested in property destruction. They destroyed 28 farms, 500 cattle, and thousands of bushels of corn. It was this raid that prompted Stavacent to hastily withdraw from New Sweden. Stavacent had several methods of dealing with the aftermath. 
He increased the defences of the settlement, which were grossly under strength. He stopped the practice of settlement in isolated areas, as this made the farmsteads particularly vulnerable to Indian attack. He also stopped the practice of allowing Indians to stay overnight in New Amsterdam, or of bringing arms into the town. This worked to great effect. 1655 was the last time Manhattan was invaded by Indians. There would still be issues with invasions further up the Hudson, but Manhattan itself would not be invaded again. As time passed, and foreign elements grew stronger within the colony, New Netherland took on a distinctly English character. For example, in 1652, the New Amsterdam Consistory sent a request for a pastor who could speak both Dutch and English, and Stuyvesant regularly employed English officials. New Netherland was attractive for those seeking freedom of religion, the type which had been difficult to achieve in several of the New England colonies. This was another complication in what was already a strained relationship. We've discussed elements of this before, such as the fact that English democracy in Long Island was an issue in New Netherland, and that there was a great deal of overlap in territorial claims, but to really understand what was going on here, we need to turn towards Europe. Now, for much of our story so far, we've always dealt with the English and Dutch as allies. This was the case at the beginning of the 17th century. However, things got more complicated during the 1640s. The Dutch were on good terms with the English, but what this really means is that the Dutch were on good terms with the English monarchy. Relations strained during the Civil War, and the execution of Charles I horrified the Dutch. Oliver Cromwell considered the Dutch enemies. This might seem odd. You would expect that, as they were both Protestant Northern European republics, the English Commonwealth and the United Provinces of the Netherlands would be allies, but international politics are far more complicated than that. So what we have as we enter the 1650s are the Dutch and English detesting each other. All that was needed for war was a specific cause of dispute, a casus belli. This was found in the colonies. I've mentioned a couple of times in the past that we'll eventually need to have a full series of episodes covering 17th century economic theory, but before we cover that, we need to stick to the simple version. At this point in history, England and the Dutch Republic represented two opposing systems of economic thought. The English were firm believers in mercantilism, while the Dutch believed in free trade. The distinction between the two is actually very important. I'm sure you're all following the 2016 US presidential election as closely as I am. If you are, one of the things you'll have noticed is that the US trade deficit is receiving a lot of attention. I don't want to get political, but this is something that's worth talking about. Let's begin with the basics. What is mercantilism, and what is the difference between it and free trade? Well, they are both theories on how to best develop a country's economy. 
Mercantilism is the belief that an economy should be designed to reduce the loss of wealth to foreign countries. In other words, an economy should be geared towards avoiding a trade deficit. This is done by placing tariffs on foreign goods, this will raise their cost, and make domestic goods more appealing. This stops money leaving the country, reducing the trade deficit. In contrast, free trade is the belief that such tariffs cause more problems than they solve. While they help foster domestic industry, they also reduce that country's ability to export. A country cannot simply supply all its own goods, so higher import duties complicate things for many industries. These complications slow down economic growth and ultimately harm the economy more than a trade deficit would. These are the theories. Mercantilism is, at least in the Anglo-centric world, the older tradition. It was the basis of the British Empire that was forming around the Atlantic, in contrast to the more famous 19th century Victorian British Empire centred on India that was dedicated to free trade and spreading it around the world. As the British Empire declined, the position of principal backer of free trade was taken up by the United States. This led to the globalisation of the 20th century. Free trade has, indeed, been something of an American orthodoxy, which is why it's academically interesting that it has become an issue in the 2016 election. At the time of writing, April 2016, Mr. Bernie Sanders of the Democratic Party and Mr. Donald Trump of the Republican Party are the two surprise candidates, and they both take a mercantile position, taking issue with the trade deficit. This is in contrast to the free trade position that is more mainstream. It's a bit risky to talk about politics, but I'm quite sure nobody will be offended by that assessment. But before I say something that gets me into trouble, what does all this have to do with the Dutch and the English in the 1650s? Well, the English fully subscribed to the mercantile approach. The economic approach was all about reducing the trade deficit. This was done through the Navigation Acts, which began in 1651, and that you'll recall we covered way back when we looked at Virginia and the economic depression, that this caused in the 1660s. The Dutch, as we've seen, were in the process of expanding their mercantile fleet and moving into free trade. They were busy removing trade restrictions to support this. We've looked at this in previous episodes. Now, mercantilism was making English goods more expensive than Dutch goods in the New World, and as Dutch goods spread into English colonies, the Commonwealth could not stand by and watch. The Dutch were abhorred by the English Commonwealth, and the English were infuriated by the Dutch violations of the Navigation Acts. We have an insight into English grievances through a petition which was given to Oliver Cromwell in 1658. Quote, The Dutch eat us out of our trade at home and abroad. They refuse to sell us a hog's head of water to refresh us at sea, and they call us English dogs which doth much grieve our English spirits. They will not sail with us, but shoot at us, and by indirect courses bring their goods into our ports, which wrongs not only us, but you in your customs. End quote. 
Conflict began, which was inevitable, and a skirmish off the coast of Dover led England to formally declare war, beginning the First Anglo-Dutch War in 1652. The Dutch were the premier maritime power of the day, and so it's understandable that they began the war on the front foot. They were led by the capable Admiral Martin Tromp, who managed to defeat the English in December 1652, but the tides were changing, and the English man-of-war ships were superior to the Dutch. They were victorious in 1653, and again in a large battle in 1654, in which Tromp was killed. Peace was brought about, but it was more temporary than anything else. It didn't fix the underlying issue of tension. The English were bothered enough by having New Netherland between New England and their Chesapeake colonies to pass another Navigation Act in 1660, and their trade rivalry off the African coast was very intense. Even the restoration of the English monarchy could not restore relations. One spark was required to set off this powder keg, and it took place in March 1664. King Charles II of England issued a grant to his brother James, the Lord High Admiral of England. The grant contained Maine, the islands off the New England coast, Long Island, the Hudson River, the land west of the Connecticut River, and east of the Delaware. In short, it gave him New Netherland. James organised a fleet to be commanded by Colonel Richard Nichols, which set sail to enforce these claims, and it arrived around Coney Island on August 26th. Stavacent sent a messenger to Nichols to see what exactly he intended to do. Nichols claimed the island of Manhattos, along with all its forts and its by which he meant New Amsterdam. Stavacent responded by detailing Dutch claims. Nichols, rather than answering Stavacent's complaints, simply told him that he had 48 hours to surrender. Stavacent was horrified and was determined to resist, but the officials of New Amsterdam, not so much. They knew they had weak defences, not much food, and the English were stronger and better equipped. The matter was lost, and the terms for surrender were not horrific. They, and the rest of the population, forced Stavacent to surrender. The English entered and Stavacent signed a letter of surrender. As Nichols wrote to Massachusetts to inform the New Englanders of this victory, he signed the letter from New York, truly beginning that particular colony's history. However, if you think the Dutch would just let this go, boy, are you mistaken. Join me next time as we cover the Second Anglo-Dutch War, something which was truly a global affair. We cover the war in what I can now call New York rather than New Netherland, back in Europe, and we must also, to truly understand the story, turn towards the tiny island of Run in Indonesia. If you want to know why, you have only to tune in next time. Thanks for listening.